Father, Lord, we do thank you that we can gather together and we can learn your word together. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would be our teacher, that you would help us understand the deep things of your word and help us to be uh, conform more to the image of your son. And also, Lord, we pray for those who may be listening over the Internet, that they may find fellowship with us. And Lord, also, if there are any unconverted, that you may permeate them with the gospel, convict their hearts so that they may believe in Christ unto salvation. We ask that you would accomplish that through us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, you can see we're, we're going through chapter 3 into chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. I entitled this, The Ministers Are to Be Judged by God According to Faithfulness. And what you're going to see is that the Corinthians were judging Paul because of his lack of rhetorical skills. And Paul has to turn the tables on them to say, you know what, you shouldn't be judging me because you're judging with motives and wisdom of this world. And what's needed isn't rhetorical wisdom, but biblical faithfulness. This is a very timely message, I think, for the church today, because in the church today in America and across the world, people elevate leaders because of their rhetorical skills, but they don't care so much about biblical faithfulness. And so that's what this message is all about. You're going to see Paul start to give a defense and culminate some of the things that he brought in chapters 1 and chapters 2 and 3 to fruition. He's going to give kind of a preliminary argument and proof of his apostolic authority. So that's where we're going to be heading. Now, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, so let me just give you a review. And I actually gave you this slide the last time we were together. This is a slide that talks about Paul's flow of thought in chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. So if you recall in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9, Paul and Apollos were seen as God's fellow workers and the Corinthians were seen as God's building. Okay, that was the metaphor he was using. And then what happened in verses 10 through 11 is Paul uses this chiastic structure. Remember, sub-point A was he said, well, he himself, Paul, laid the foundation of the church. And, of course, we know the foundation is Christ and what he has done, the person and work of Christ, namely the gospel. But then he says, well, someone else is now building on it. And that someone better be careful how they build on it because if it's not consistent with the foundation that's already been laid, namely Christ, it's going to be burned up. That's the idea. And so, again, he said the foundation is Jesus Christ. And so then in verses 12 through 15, the judgment seat of Christ came into play And remember the gold, silver, and precious stones? If you built with those things, it meant that you were building consistently with what the gospel is all about. If you're building with wood, hay, and stubble, those are things that are going to be burned up. That's the wisdom of this age. Okay. And then finally, the metaphor that he ended up with in that section was not to destroy God's temple. So the building changed to a temple. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because when we get into chapter 4 this morning, Paul you're going to see he's going to use the imagery of him being the chief attendant or servant of this household of God. So who is managing the temple, as it were, while Jesus is away? Well, it's Paul. And so how dare the underlings within this household, namely the Corinthians, criticize Paul, who is in a sense the head servant, because he will only be judged by whom? Well, by Jesus when he returns. Okay, because he is the master of the house. And so that is the argument that Paul is going to be using. Okay, and so that's why I think it's important to see the flow. But before we get into chapter 4, we finish chapter 3 and we see that there's a need 
for true wisdom. So you're going to see this great reversal. What the Corinthians thought was wise, namely their own wisdom and their own power, Paul has to take that away from them and say, no, true wisdom resides in the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Notice this phrase, let no one deceive himself. Friends, that is the most prolific problem in the world is self-deception. And it's deception, of course, that comes from the evil one. People think that they're righteous before God using their own merits. People are self-deceived about who God is, that he would not judge them. They're deceived in so many different ways. But at the end of the day, the deception that the Corinthians were running into was that they were boasting in their own wisdom and what they perceived to be their own spiritual nature, but they had started to reject Paul in the gospel of Christ and uh, salvation through faith alone in Christ alone as the only means of salvation. And so they had no wisdom at all, and they were deceiving themselves. Now notice the if-then argument. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, then there's the implied then, then let him become a fool that he may become wise. It's interesting, Paul uses this if anyone among you seems wise two other places. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. Paul says this, he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. In the context there, remember that there was Corinthians who were saying, well, I know that an idol or meat sacrifice to an idol is nothing because an idol is nothing, but they were using that knowledge and causing weaker brothers who didn't have that knowledge to stumble. And Paul is saying, if you really knew that, you wouldn't create a situation where you're brother or sister would stumble so he's saying you don't really know as you ought to know you don't have true wisdom and then in in first corinthians 14 37 he says the same thing because now in first corinthians 14 37 they're rejecting paul again and he's still arguing with them that he is in fact their apostle he says if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual let him recognize that the things which i write to you are the lord's commandment so the point is, is paul uses this a lot and what he's attacking notice the flow Chapter 3, he's he's attacking their wisdom. You seem to be wise. Dokao. You seem. You're not really wise, but you seem to be wise, but they're really not. Here he says they suppose that they really know. Remember, they elevated their gnosis, their knowledge, but they really don't know as they ought to. Why? Because if you really knew the gospel, you really knew the word of God, are you going to create a situation where your brothers and sisters will fall into temptation? Absolutely not. Okay, so they claim to know, but they really don't. And then he says they claim to be spiritual, yet they're rejecting God's personal spokesman, an apostle who speaks the very words of Christ. See, he's attacking them point for point because if they reject Paul, then they reject the gospel. So this isn't a personal thing with Paul. Notice Paul is defending himself for their sake because if they lose Paul the apostle, they lose the gospel associated with Paul and they're done. They're heading the way of the world. So this is a battle for their preservation. And, of course, we know that God's elect will persevere. They will, in fact, heed these warnings. So that's the nature of the argument. Notice it's in this age. Notice he's attacking. They seem to be wise in this age. And what I want to talk about now is this reversal that's going to come. Now, remember, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, in some sense, friends, he inaugurated the new age. 
Okay, that is, I want to be careful because new age means different things, obviously, to people today. But I'm talking about the messianic age. Okay, it was inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. Okay, so Jesus Christ's first advent brought in the last days, but they will be consummated at his coming. But the point is, there's going to be a reversal of wisdom. Let me just show you in kind of a graphic form here. The wisdom of this world during this age, the, the majority of people on this planet believe that their thoughts, that is man's thoughts, are wise. And they look at you who preach the gospel and explain God's word as fools. Okay? They look at God's thoughts as foolishness. Have you ever been witnessing to somebody, or maybe you're debating scripture, and you clearly have the evidence of scripture on your side, but they will not listen to you? And really, what's interesting is you think about it, it's two human beings arguing about what is true. And you have the words of the living God, but they won't receive it. Friends, there's a day that's coming when they will have to because God himself will be on the scene and he will declare it. So what's interesting is you are declaring beforehand what's actually true. But right now, we're in some form of a a standoff where the world, there's not the, the, don't get me wrong, What's settled is God's word and it's true. But it's when God comes on the scene that they won't be able to reject it. Paul is talking about that day there's going to be a reversal. And so what he's trying to do is he's warning the Corinthians, get your thinking in line with the gospel now. Don't worry about the wisdom of this age because if you don't get it straight now, in the age to come, you'll have no part of the kingdom. That's how serious this is. And so think about it, friends. The age to come, when Jesus comes back, then there's going to be this reversal. Man's thoughts will, instead of being wisdom, they'll be put in the category of foolishness and they'll be demonstrated as such. But God's thoughts by the world that were thought to be foolish will be demonstrated as true wisdom. Okay? Now, let me just bring you to the book of Revelation. Remember in Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, you're going to have a rebellion of all the nations. What's interesting is the nations are going to so hate God's rule and God's wisdom even during his millennial reign, that they will rebel and Jesus will call down fire upon them. I was witnessing to a man one day, and I'll never forget, he liked everything that was socially progressive, meaning that they were going to build the kingdom themselves. But yet he was for abortion. He was for everything that was immoral, gay marriage. And I looked at this man, I said, you know what? You're not going to like the kingdom very much. You know? They're they're not going to like the kingdom. When Messiah comes, the kingdom is going to look far different than what they imagined that they could build. It's going to look far different. And so you see, even in Revelation 20, the kingdom is different than they want. That is human beings. And they're going to rebel against Christ. But again, the point in this passage is Paul is saying, he's really pleading with them, your wisdom of this age counts for nothing. They have to align their thinking with the, the wisdom of the Messiah and his gospel. And in fact, that will be tr- that's true wisdom. Okay, so that's what the battle is about. So God here scoffs then at worldly wisdom. In verses 19 through 20, Paul continues. He says, "For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written." Now here comes Job. He says he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, and here comes Psalm 94:11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Okay. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is this portion highlighted red. Notice that this is a reversal of what we saw in 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18, remember, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved is the power of God. Well, now Paul inverts that argument. He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And at the end of the day, isn't that what matters? It's, what matters, friends, is what God determines to be wise and foolish. And what's wise to God is, in fact, his son crucified because he's the only means of atonement. He's the only means of satisfaction and propitiation of sin. And he's the only means that you and I can be clothed in righteousness. Why? Because we don't have any of our own. And how can you atone for yourself? No one can. Why? Because you deserve the death that comes upon you as punishment. You see? And so that's why the wisdom from the gospel is the only wisdom there is. In fact, God declares so. The next thing I want to point out is this uh, phrase here. The sentence comes from Job 5. Uh, 13 and paul it's interesting he cites the hebrew version of job 5 13 and there's irony this actually the statement he catches the wise in their own craftiness there's irony in eliphaz's statement remember he was one of the friends of job the reason why it's irony is because paul is quoting and he's quoting eliphaz saying something that is true what's ironic is eliphaz is actually using it to culminate an argument that says hey job you must be sinning because we know God is just. Well, of course, we know the whole story. It wasn't that Job was sinning. But my point being is, realize Paul is taking a statement that's actually true from Eliphaz. Certainly, God does catch the wise in their own craftiness. The other thing I want to point out is, notice the phrase here from Psalm 94.11. It actually comes from the Septuagint, where the only difference is Paul uses wise instead of men. So remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why am I bringing that up? Slightly an excursion, but let me show you something. Notice, in this one passage, Paul both uses the Hebrew verbatim from Job 5.13, and he uses the Greek Septuagint. And that just shows you that Paul would have been very familiar with both the Hebrew and the Greek text. And he uses them both in context, by the way. So remember, Paul and the other apostles would have been men would have been very adept in all the languages, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Aramaic, those type of languages. Okay. The reason why I'm pointing this out is it's not so clear-cut to say Paul always uses the Septuagint, although he often does, because he also knows the Hebrew as well. Okay. And the other thing is I want to point out, very important, there's a movement today that says Paul plays fast and loose always with the context of Scripture. No, he doesn't. Often he's taking this Scripture in its original context. But the point that he wants to make here, and it's the point being made in the Psalms, is that the men of the world think they're wise and they're really not. And in fact, they are futile in their thinking. So God is seen here as scoffing at their wisdom. Now we see that all things are ours in Christ. And this is a very beautiful passage. It's almost poetic. Where Paul continues in verses 21 through 23. He says, therefore... Now remember that therefore... He's culminating his argument here. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, remember, of course, that's Peter's name, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, are all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Notice this phrase, therefore, let no one boast in men. This, friends, now again, Paul is returning to an argument that he initiated in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 12. Remember, he's talking about the boasting in Apollos and Paul and Cephas. Well, what Paul is doing is he's concluding the argument from there, and others refer to 1 Corinthians 1, 12, where he says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am a Paul, 
or I am of Apollos, or I am Cephas, or I am of Christ. So here, he's coming to the conclusion. All the things that he's said up to this point leads you to the conclusion, don't boast in men. Why? Because that's just the wisdom of this age. What matters is what God has said. Okay, And so what we see is evidence of that in this explanatory four. It's an explanatory four saying, why should we not boast in men? Okay, Why should we not boast in men? Well, because they have all things in Christ. Okay, You and I have all things in Christ, so why would we boast in our leaders? Why would we boast in anything that we bring to the table? Let's just boast in Christ and Him alone and what He has done. That's the idea. Now let me talk a little bit about this. Think about what he's saying. All things whether it be Paul or Apollos, in other words, the leadership, whether it be the world or life or death or things present or things to come, they're all theirs. And what he's saying there, friends, is that being that Christ has already come, we live in this already not yet tension in which the Corinthian Christians have all things. So to them, death is something that they reign over, not because they themselves are lords in the sense that they're gods, but rather because they belong to the camp of Christ who is God. They belong to him in such a way that they reign over all things. And therefore, you and I and the Corinthians, we shouldn't fear anything. Why? Because we reign over it. Because we're with Christ. All things are ours. So we can say like Paul did, to live is Christ and to, to die is gain. Okay, friends, we got the world by the tail. If you have Christ and the wrath of God is no longer bent towards you, you have it all. And that's what Paul is saying. So why boast in mere men where you have nothing? Nothing but arguments, nothing but strife, nothing but the things of this world. Flee to Christ, his cross, and you're going to have all things. And by the way, that eternal life starts now. That's the point. So I just want to show you where else Paul talks about this. In Ephesians 1.10, Paul talks about all these things that in the dispensation, he says of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. So remember, friends, that at the end of the day, all things belong to Christ, and he will put what is the last enemy under his foot? Well, we find out in 1 Corinthians 15, that is, in fact, death. And that's why he can culminate the argument in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 15:55. where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because even Christ has wiped that out. So you, right now as a Christian, this is what Paul is saying, is you own death. And you tread on it like this. Why? Not because you you have a death wish, but because you are assured eternal life. Friends, that's powerful. That's the kind of life you can have right now because of what Christ has done. No fear of death because you have and are a present possessor of eternal life. The other thing I want to point out, and it gives some scholars angst, is this phrase, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And the reason why this creates some angst is some people think that this shows Christ is somehow less than God, less than deity. And I'm going to show you, no, that's a confusion of the text. And let me talk about um, what Paul would have understood. Remember, Paul, what he's talking about here is not that Christ is less than God ontologically, And remember what I mean by ontos or ontologically is existence. He's not saying that Christ is less than God, but what he's saying is that Christ is functionally subordinate. Okay, why? Well, he submits to the Father. So what he's not saying is that Christ is ontologically inferior because Christ is ontologically equal, that is equally God. 
Okay, so what we have to do is make sure we have our categories straight. Yes, Christ is God's in the sense that he submits to him functionally, but ontologically he is one with God because he's God himself. Okay, so remember, Paul in his mind, being Hebrew, he would have Deuteronomy 6.4 in his, in his mind, the Shema. Shema means hear, it means listen. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so Paul, of course, would affirm the unity of God, that there's one God. But that same Paul, let, let me just show you what he writes in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. And remember, it says, have this same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's how the passage starts. And so what Paul is inviting and actually exhorting is Christians to have the same humility that Christ has. Okay, so listen to what it says about this Jesus. This is Paul, remember, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant um, and coming in the likeness of man. What's interesting is we see both of the functional subordination and the ontologically being equal. We see that in the same passage. In other words, ontologically, Jesus is God because it says he's in the very form of God. But yet he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. In other words, he was functionally subordinate. Okay? So we see both of those ideas in this text. So when you see phrases like Christ is God's, know that this is talking about the functional subordination within the Trinity. It's not talking about Christ being somehow inferior in his power or his deity. Okay? All right. Now, what I want to do is return to the idea that all things are ours in Christ. And Gordon Fee has a paragraph that I have to read to you because it's so much better than anything I could say. You can always tell when somebody owns a text. Gordon Fee owns 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he says about this. This is beautiful. It almost brought tears to my eyes. He's culminating what this section is about. Having all things in Christ, Fee says this, For Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus... Mark the turning of the ages in such a way that nothing lies outside of Christ's jurisdiction. In the form of the cross, God has planted his flag on planet earth and marked it off as his own possession. Hence, the world is his. So also with the whole of existence, life and death, which are immediately placed into eschatological perspective, the present and the future. Because in Christ Jesus, both life and Itself and therefore the future are ours. Death is ours as well as is the present. We die, but life cannot be taken from us. We live the life of the future in the present age. Man, that's important. He says, and therefore the present has become our own possession. For those in Christ Jesus, what things were formerly tyrannies are now their new birthright. This is the glorious freedom of the children of God. They are free lords of all things, not bound to the whims of chance or the exigencies of life and death. Except the continuing expression of death itself, this is the point of 1523 to 28. Again, talking about the resurrection, right? And then he continues, he says, When this final enemy, that is death, is subdued, then comes the end when all is turned over to the Father. Friends, even death, you are masters over it, not because of anything you've done, not because you're somehow a mini-god, but because you reign in the camp of Christ who has overcome all these things. So currently you are a possessor of eternal life. It's not that you will have it. You will, but it's you have it now. 
Okay, and that's Paul's point. Don't flee, he's saying to the Corinthians, back to the wisdom that gave you nothing but strife, trouble, and death of this world. Flee to Christ and the cross where you have all things. Even death, you reign over it so you can stomp it in the ground. And in some sense, you're a possessor of even that. Okay? And think about, friends, I know we've had a relative die here just recently. They were a believer. I've had a relative die not too long ago. They were a believer. We know, friends, that they are possessors of eternal life. Friends, this is great news indeed. A great section. So the apostles now, what Paul's going to do in chapter 4 is he's going to really have to fight for his apostolic authority and he's going to be proving that they are servants judged only by God. Okay? So here, here's where Paul's going to be going. He's going to be talking that he himself is the head of the household. He is the servant par excellence. He is the head servant. And the rest of the Corinthians, and for that matter, other Christians, are underlings within the household. But how dare the underlings criticize or judge the head servant? Because the head servant, who is he really trying to please? Is it the other people within the house while the master is away? No, what he wants to do is when the master comes, he wants to be faithful to him. And so that's his whole goal. And that's why he's saying it's really ludicrous for these Corinthians to be judging his apostolic authority. It really rolls off his back. He couldn't care less. All right, so what I want to show you is in chapter 3, he's going to pick up on two imageries. One is the apostles of servants. He's going to be borrowing back from that. And then also in chapter 3 is the coming judgment. That is going to be his two subjects in chapter 4 now, verses 1 through 5. So you're going to see both of these elements come in. So now, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, Paul says this. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful is what matters. In fact, Bob was just talking about that. Biblical faithfulness is what matters. Why? Because God has spoken. But let me start, I want to pick this apart a little bit. Servants of Christ, the idea of being a servant comes from the Greek term here. And it's interesting, he uses here huperitas. And why that's significant is because in chapter 3, when he was talking about them being servants, it was just an atypical, or not atypical, I should say, prototypical servant, a diakonos, okay, or diakonos, okay, a regular servant. But now Paul switches and notice he uses the plural because he's putting Apollos and Peter in the same boat. But notice he's saying that they are those who are a subordinate, a servant, an attendant, or assistant in general. But the idea is that they're a subordinate official who waits to accomplish the commands of his superior. It's the idea that you're the personal attendant to the general, okay, or the governor, or of some person of rank. You're not just the lower underlings. You're in the... You're, a manager of, in, in, a, in a sense, okay? But you're still a steward. And you're going to see the same thing. Now he picks up on the term stewards, and again he uses them in the plural, and here he switches to oikonomos, which is an accusative plural. So it's usually oikonos. But now here's what I want to point out about this Greek term. There's a Greek noun oikos, and that means house. So you can see the relationship between house and the manager of the house, Okay? This is a manager of the household whose sole purpose is to do the good pleasure of the owner of the house. So the imagery, again, is Christ is away. He's the owner of the house. Remember back in chapter 3, what is the house? Well, it's the temple of God that he's been building all along. On what foundation? The foundation of the gospel. So Paul is the chief steward. So the point being is he doesn't really care at all 
what the fellow servants say. He just cares about what the master of the house says. That's who he's trying to please. He's not trying to please his fellow servants. So that's the imagery, and I wanted, wanted you to see that. The other thing is notice, and I think it's very important that we see what Paul is concerned about is faithfulness. And I think this has a tremendous implication in all of your ministries today because maybe you take flack because you're not the most eloquent. You're, maybe you don't have um, the rhetorical skills that people want to listen to. Friends, that's wisdom of this world. That doesn't really matter. What matters, friends, is your biblical faithfulness. And that's what Paul's pointing out. Faithfulness is what is required of a servant of God. Notice that Paul does not call for eloquence or any other abilities. So Paul, friends, was faithful to the gospel, to the word of God. Friends, what matters is that God has spoken and we can know it and that God's spokesmen are faithful to that message. Not that they're eloquent. Many men can be eloquent but aren't faithful. Now, it's good to be both eloquent and faithful. That's great. In other words, eloquence isn't being attacked for the sake of attacking eloquence, but the idea is what really matters is faithfulness. Okay? All right. So Paul defends, he keeps defending his apostolic authority here now in verses 3 through 4. And he continues, he says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord." Notice, friends, Paul can only be judged by the owner of the home who had given him the trust. Okay, so if you're the master servant of a household, the fellow servants aren't going to judge you. It's the owner of the home. That's what he's pointing out. He's waiting for the owner of the home to come back. And then everything will be set straight. So it's really immaterial that the Corinthians are saying, well, you're not really very rhetorically gifted. and You're not this, you're not that, you're not spiritual, Paul. He could really, he couldn't care less. (laughs) right is that the way to say it yeah he he doesn't care because at the end of the day it's the lord's judgment that matters all right paul explains that he has a clear conscience but notice he acknowledges that does not clear him because even paul's conscience can be wrong christ alone will judge paul's ministry okay that's what he is waiting for and so he even acknowledged in other words what he's saying is to my the best of my knowledge i don't think i've done anything wrong or I've built improperly. But at the end of the day, it's the owner of the house that will tell me all these things. Okay. Now, the thing I want to talk about, though, in verse 5, in, in these verses as well, and I'll get to that, is a misapplication where people will use these passages and say that we shouldn't judge at all. And I'll talk about that in verse 5, and I'll explain why that's a misnomer here. But let me just conclude his argument. He says, Therefore, in verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So you see now Paul is reverting back to the judgment that's coming during the day of the Lord, where we'll have, remember, two different judgments, the judgment seat of Christ, where salvation isn't the issue, it's reward. But then there's also going to be one day the judgment, the white throne, which in Revelation chapter 20 is only for unbelievers, and the issue again, isn't, in a sense, salvation because they're damned. It's how bad hell will be. Okay, that's the type of judgments. But that's all wrapped into the day of the Lord. But particularly, Paul is probably referring to more of the judgment seat of Christ 
and how he will judge his servants here. But the thing I want want you to take note of is that there's this misapplication that's often used by Christians of this text, and that is this. We shouldn't judge anything or anyone until Christ comes. So in other words, this text may be thrown into your face where people will say, well, you shouldn't be judging. You can only judge when Christ comes. In fact, how many times you'll be witnessing to somebody, proclaiming the gospel, explaining, hey, you're a sinner, and they'll say, judge not, from Matthew 7. But notice, that's, by the way, that's the text that's known best by the unregenerate, is judge not, <laughs> right? But they never know the rest of it. Judge not, lest you be judged, for in the same manner you render judgment, you will be judged. Okay, so Matthew 7 is a prohibition, and I think um, Justin Peters pointed this out a couple weeks ago. It's a prohibition not against judgment in and of itself, but hypocritical judgment. So in other words, if you went up to somebody and said, you know, you're, Larry, you're, <laughs> you're a wretched sinner, but Eric Dalma, I'm a swell guy. You need Christ, I don't. Well, that would be hypocritical judgment. The thing is, both you and I are sinners. And that's what you're doing when you're presenting the gospel. You're saying, you know what, I'm just another beggar who's found the bread of life, right? So it's not... Well, yeah, exactly. So the, the point being is we're not, it's not hypocritical judgment because we're in the same boat. Well, the point being in this text is that, notice, the context clearly indicates that Paul is prohibiting the Corinthians from judging his apostleship. The issue is whether the Corinthians have the status or standing to judge whether he's an apostle. And he's saying, no, I answer only to the owner of the house. Okay? So remember, we always have to take the prohibitions in context. When he says, therefore, judge nothing... It's really nothing about Paul and who he is. Now, proof of that is seen in 1 Corinthians 5 and also 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul clearly states that they should be judging. Okay? All right, so let me just show you those passages. We must judge according to 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, where Paul says this. Now, remember the context is Paul says, I've actually seen sexual immorality among you. Remember the man had his own father's wife for his bride? And what he's saying then in verse 12 through 13, he culminates saying, you ought to judge those who are in the church. And that's what he's talking about those. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then he quotes here from Deuteronomy 17, 7, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, the problem with the Corinthians is they weren't engaging in church discipline. They weren't holding this man into account because of his sin. And so we see that in fact, Part, far from Paul saying that you shouldn't judge anything, the only thing that they shouldn't be judging is whether he's an apostle or not. That's been settled, and that's been settled by Christ. But they certainly should be judging some of these matters, shouldn't they? Who had, I think I gave Jim 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 5, and you're going to see also Paul's calling. Now here the context is talking about the Corinthians are bringing themselves, are bringing one another before secular magistrates and uh, secular judges to have matters that they should be settling themselves. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 5. When any of you has a legal dispute with another, does he dare go to court before the unrighteous rather than before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to settle trivial suits? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Why not ordinary matters? So if you have ordinary lawsuits... Do you approach as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Is there no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between fellow Christians? Yeah, so here they're supposed to be entering into judgment with one another, not bringing it to the outside courts. Now, think about this. What's happening there in 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll get to that passage, obviously, but 
bring this out a bit, if, if we're going to be making a mockery of ourselves as Christians in front of the world, what we're really doing is we're violating the third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Because remember, Bob had given us an excellent sermon about that. Taking the Lord's name in vain is far more than taking, and incorporates this, but it's more than just taking the Lord's name and abusing it verbally. But you and I call ourselves Christians. We're calling ourselves by the name of the Holy One of Israel, of Jesus, and we're taking upon that name. Now, if we make a mockery of his name or of ourselves in public and before the world, what we're doing is we're taking God's name in vain in the sense that we're not living up to who we really are and we're bringing shame upon his reputation. So, friends, remember, at the end of the day, you and I don't live for ourselves. We live for his reputation. His reputation is always attached to you. And it can never depart. So that's why Paul is so angry about it, because these people are representing Christ. Okay, But obviously the point being here is that if there's a lesser to greater argument, if they're going to judge one day the angels and they're going to be reigning with Christ, how much more should they be able to judge on simple matters and not bring lawsuits on one another? Okay, and In fact, I think that speaks to our society. Look how as the, our societies become less Christian, has there been more or less lawsuits? <laughs> just, it's just something that popped into my mind. It may be off topic, but anyway, it's just something to notice. So at any rate, but Paul is saying, no, you must judge some things. He just, um, his apostleship should not be judged because they don't have the authority to do that. So let me give you an application. And Bob is going to be giving us more applications down the road. This is one that just sticks out to me. It's that Paul's words, friends, I think have tremendous implications for Christians today. The church in America, for example, has suffered from its congregants judging its ministers on faulty grounds. Too often, ministers have been judged unfairly for lacking charisma or perceived leadership skills, but the lack of biblical judgment has also had disastrous consequences as ministers have not been judged according to what really matters, that is biblical faithfulness. In other words, it's interesting, is the same problem the Corinthians ran into, that is elevating the wisdom of this world, his infected Christendom in America, it, it just, I mean, to the point of almost, uh, we're Corinthians ourselves, aren't we? In other words, those who speak well, um, you look at Joel Olstein, now, whether he speaks well or not, I don't know, but he certainly has no biblical faithfulness, and yet people elevate the man. And then there's, I know people from my own life who were biblically faithful, they didn't speak well, and you could, they could barely get a hearing. When's the last time you saw the janitor of an institution who had a great testimony, one that was founded on the gospel, when did you hear him interviewed on a big talk show? And yet the sports figure who gives you the prosperity gospel, who says, you know, because of my faith in Jesus, I always throw touchdown passes now, and I never get sacked. You know, he has nothing to, nothing to do with the gospel. Everybody wants to hear him. Friends, it's, it's inverted. They're listening to the wisdom of this world. But there's a day that's coming where it's going to be reversed when Messiah comes on the scene. And then the janitor will be elevated and the football player may be downgraded. So my point being is what matters is biblical faithfulness, staying in the text. So I think where that applies to you, remember 1 Peter 2.9, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. You are, in fact, ministers of the gospel yourself, and you all have ministries. And what that says to you is your job, number one, is to be faithful to what the biblical text is saying and give it uncompromisingly to the world and in love. Okay, So I think this is a great encouragement 
to you and I as ministers because we're not called to eloquence, although that's fine if you have it. But what we're called to is biblical faithfulness, and we all can do that. We all can be faithful in the household, as it were, as an underling to Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. So with that, I'll take any comments or questions. Yeah, Larry. You talked about one of my favorite subjects earlier when you mentioned about Paul in Philippians 2, yeah. uh, 5 through 7, and you talked about the differences. Uh, would it be easier to, I guess, uh, describe the situation on the ontological uh, uh, subordination and the economical equality? I think it's, wait a minute, it's ontological equality versus economical subordination, subordination because yeah. those are $5 words, I guess, that people struggle with. Sure. Uh, ontological is as who and functional is his do would it be easier to describe yeah, it that way i like that his who versus his do that's very good yeah yeah exactly his who didn't change well, let me think about this his do <laughs> changed in the sense that in other words, he didn't lose any of his divine attributes but what he did is he took upon himself humility that wasn't independently necessary other than for our salvation you know what i'm saying so, yeah, um, I like that. It's very simple, yet it's accurate. Yeah, that's good. Who versus do, yep. Yeah. Uh, would you consider verse, chapter 3, verse 21, a good basis for arguing with uh, uh, Catholics and or people that uh, bring forth appalling epistles? So then let no man boast in men, for all things belong to you, because Catholics always have patron saint and uh, the people that uh, profess the Pauline epistles, they are, in, they are basically in Paul. Is that a good basis for, for an argument? I, I think it is, yeah. I, I think boasting in anything except for Christ is, is foolishness. Certainly what's tied into uh, Catholic doctrine is ultimately the papacy and who speaks for God. And the issue, therefore, is when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the seat, they believe that is the word from God. What's the problem is, is that contradicts often what the apostles are teaching. And so at the end of the day, it's man's wisdom versus God. So again, we come back to that issue of apostolic authority. Who is an apostle and who is not? That's why that's such an important issue, because who speaks for God and who doesn't speak for him? So in other words, the point being is the Catholic issue really is who's speaking for God. But yeah, I certainly think an implication of that would be if you buy into Catholic doctrine you end up glorifying men rather than God alone. And so, yeah, that's one of the points of the Reformation, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Bob. Could you, flip, could you flip back to that slide on judging? Yeah, that one there. Yeah. I once um, did a comprehensive study of the New Testament concerning the word judge in its yeah. various forms, crino, anacrino, yeah. diacrino, okay, and there's various nuances having to do with discern okay. and what have you. And I got all those verses together and yeah. laid it all out and then divided it into when it tells us not to judge and when it tells us to judge. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I made a CAC article out of this some years ago. Wow. And the answer at the end of the day is actually simpler than you would imagine. Because wow. it seems confusing. It says judge not, and then in other times it says, can you not judge, and why sure. don't you judge? Yeah. Okay, so I'm supposed to judge, and I'm supposed to not judge. Which is it? How do I figure it out? Yeah. Well, here's the bottom line yeah, that I got from my study. Oh, 
We, we are to judge what we can know, and we're not to judge what we cannot know. Wow. And you can see that in this passage here. What is it that we, we can't judge before the time? Hidden things of darkness and counsels yeah. of the heart, or the motivations yeah. of the heart, it says in another translation. So I can judge somebody's public teaching as to whether it's biblical or not biblical, sure. because that can be known. Right. But I can't judge somebody's hidden motives because I don't know. Maybe they're motivated by money. Maybe they're motivated by pride. Maybe they're motivated by actually sincerely thinking they're right when, in fact, they're not. Okay, so we can lay aside trying to judge things that we cannot see and cannot know, that only God knows, but we must judge what we as Christians can no. Wow, that's beautiful. And what's revealed in Scripture is something that we can know. Bob, what do you remember the CIC number that you? Uh, had it was somewhere in the nineties, I 90s, think. Nineties, okay. It's, we put in judgment. I, well, I wrote that uh, sort of to help people. Um, almost every article I write is based on people's asking me questions. Sure, yeah. Or calling or emailing and saying, "Here's a problem I have." Yeah. And so the problem people were having was they go to their pastors or elders and say. Uh, why are you bringing this false teaching into the church? Mm-hmm. And we want the gospel. We don't want all this other junk. Sure. And then the pastors would just push them off and say, you can't judge. <laughs> judge not, judge not, go away, judge not. Right. And they were feeling, uh, somebody told me they were just feeling terribly guilty. Mm. Like they were doing some evil by trying to steer the church in the right direction of the gospel. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote the article, I, I did the study and wrote the article to try to encourage the flock that, you know, if somebody's preaching false doctrine from the pulpit, yeah. you have to judge right. it. You can't just sit back and say, well, I guess it's the pastor, so we have to believe it. <laughs> right. You do not have to believe the pastors, including me. <laughs> you only have to believe the Word of God. Um, you know, and if a pastor accurately proclaims the Word, then they should be listened to, not because they're the pastor per se, but because the Word of God is true hmm. and God cannot lie. Amen. Wow. Yeah, I just want to add to that. Uh, so by telling the congregation, or the congregants, that you can't know, all right, you know, as it pertains to judging or something pertaining to Scripture, you're opening the door for them to receive what the, what the leaders would say that you should know. In other words, they're directing your mind toward falsehood. Hmm. And that's how they get, gain control. Hmm. Uh, classic mark of a cult. This is what they did to me at Maranatha. Okay. You know, and, and they would withhold information for six months uh, you'd have all these questions building up in you. You'd be you'd be just crying for information. You know, like what's going on here? Yeah. And then they would bring in this apostle who would who would uh, give you a quote prophetic word from the Lord. Sure. So this this would not answer your questions. This would put you into into a further spin of mystery. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> this goes on right here in the Twin Cities. Yeah. All the time. Right now, here's Sunday. You know, this is what they're doing today. Wow. So, so the, instead of relying upon the objective Word of God, they put you into the subjective where you have to hear from men the, the mysteries, right? Yeah. So it's just a form of mysticism. Yeah. Wow. 
you know, the best Bob, those thing, are great categories. Yeah, the, the best thing that church leaders can do to res- help resolve that and to keep people from that sort of abuse is to teach the entire congregation, not only teach them the Word of God, but teach them hermeneutics yeah. and teach them how to study the Bible, give them the tools so they can search the Scriptures and they can really be... It's one thing to yeah. tell people to be Bereans, yeah. but it's another thing to make sure they have the tools so they can be Bereans. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay? And I'm telling you... Uh, I, this congregation is pretty good at that. Yeah. Um, I can't even get a wrong verse reference on a slide to <laughs> get by with it. <laughs> well, I have about 20 people saying, yeah, they're wrong verse. That was Second Peter. That's not one Peter. Yeah, it makes you check your slides. <laughs> Which, it, yeah. that's okay. That's what we want. Yeah. Okay. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Can you uh, address the issue of, uh, if any, the, the numerous if any's in this chapter 3? Oh, yeah. Um, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of those. 12, 14, 15, 17, and 18. And then it goes to, in verse 20, no man. Yeah, it's really the same category, if any or no man. It's part of the if, this, then, that. So that would be a conditional sentence or sometimes referred to as a hypothetical syllogism. So it's universal. It applies. What's interesting, though, and this comes from Fee, is when you read that if, then, in the context of Corinthians... Yeah, exactly. It's not that Paul is saying, well, if this happens to be going on in your life, well, then this. No, he knows it's going on. But the point is he's laying it out universally. If this... Being gentle. <laughs> well, he perhaps is being gentle, but it, it's... it's um, I wouldn't say he's being gentle. I mean, he's being direct, but he's applying the if-then so that it applies to all men and all those within uh, Corinth. But in other words, it's not that he doesn't know whether or not they're engaging in this type of behavior, whether it be judging him or elevating human wisdom, he knows that they're doing that. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not that he's saying, if you're doing this, and I don't know if you are or not. No, he knows they are, but he's putting in that form so that it's it's a universal principle and no man is exempt from that. Yeah. So Yeah, if you, if any of you were in Eric's logic class, what was oh, that yeah. last fall? Yeah, last fall. We yeah. talked about the if then logic yeah. and the the point of the if then is you have if a then b yeah. okay so if a is true uh, you know which is affirming the antecedent, antecedent yeah. right <laughs> affirming the antecedent if a is true then b necessarily follows yeah. but there's a, an error that can creep into this which is very common Right. And which would be to affirm the antecedent and assume, therefore, no, affirm uh, the, consequent, the, yeah. Yeah, the antecedent, the precedent, the right? Yeah, or the, the consequent. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's right, yeah. Okay, the antecedent and the consequent. So you yep. affirm the consequent, yep. and therefore you think that you must have proved the antecedent to be true, right. which is false logic. Right, that's right. And, the, and people do this all the time, and it's kind of a common error. And so what you would be doing with something like this, now we're assuming normal animals here, okay, not one that was in a car accident or whatever. <laughs> That's right. You would say all cats have four legs. Fido has four legs, so therefore Fido's a cat. Right, right. <laughs> no, it doesn't follow, right. okay? But if you'd say that, you know, puffy is a cat, 
<laughs> then you can say, therefore, Puffy has four legs. Sure. And then the reverse is also an issue, and uh, yeah. that's just basic logic. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's all over. That's what's interesting is um, the postmoderns try to deny that logic can be known or that the scriptures use logic. We, um, we, when we put on this logic course, you can go to the scriptures and just find, well, Paul's using a, a hypothetical syllogism. Now he goes to um, a sword. He's, he, he, uses, he uses logic all the time. The logic is inherent in the text. And what's interesting is the logic coheres, or in other words, it's, um, there's no violation of logic within the text. So the point being, friends, the postmoderns are wrong. The Bible uses logic. And this is the very logic that they're trying to throw into the ash heap of history, saying that that was somehow platon or, or, or platonic, that's yesterday's news, and they're throwing it on the trash heap of history when, in fact, the scriptures use it all the time. So it's a big issue in scholarly yeah, circles. Absolutely. That, that's a huge problem with postmodern uh, yeah. ideas is to throw out logic as if it was admitted by Aristotle. Yeah. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, logic can be found all the way back into the Garden of Eden, and it's necessary. Logic mm. is absolutely necessary for us to understand anything God ever said. That's right. Or to make any application. Now, let's just go back to the beginning. Has God said that you can eat, yeah. okay, from any of the trees? Yeah. All right, okay, so now we have categories. Categories can be judged logically. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil yeah. is forbidden. Yeah. And there's all the other trees that are permitted. Logic says A is not non-A. Right. Okay? And so this one tree is not like the others, and that one's forbidden. But Satan wants to reject that and say, uh, no, God is just not playing tricks with you, and he knows that if you eat of this, you're just going to become like God. And then there's a other category is dying and not dying. Yeah. So Satan wants to erase that category right, right. and just have a conversation. Yes. And so we need these. This is what it looks like to be created in the image of God as human beings. This isn't just for smart people, academics, PhDs. Logic mm-hmm. is how everybody in the world survives and does business. Okay, you you can distinguish between food and poison. You can distinguish between right and wrong. You can distinguish between your tools that you need for a certain job and tools that don't work for that job. If you're a cook, you distinguish between what works in this recipe and what doesn't. And all of these things are just using basic logic. Why do we have logic? Because we're created in God's image. Why do we need logic? Because we don't. We're not instinctive beasts. Okay, these people that think nature is their mother and nature is going to take care of them, all right? (laughs) You take any of those people, don't train them in survival skills or giving them any tools, and put them out in the middle of the north woods, deep in the woods, and say, just sit out here and let nature take care of you. <laughs> and sometime later, somebody will find a dead body out in the woods. <laughs> okay, so this attack against rationality yeah. is an attack against humans being created in the image of God. If you, the next CAC article, it's in the mail right now, and it's also on the web, is about how that very same attack against Western civilization, rationality, and human enterprise, and so on, was the a hallmark of Nazi Germany. 
Wow. And that the same ideas that are so popular today in our colleges and universities were the very ideas of the fascists. Mm. And uh, so my article explains that, and, and the, the similarities are absolutely stunning. Wow. And so the article says ideas have consequences. If we want to believe the very same things the fascists believed in 1930, what consequences do you think we'll get? Wow. I, I'm not yeah. saying that I know, but all I know is it's going to be bad. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Bob, I like to remember your slide in your emergent lecture about the postmodern doctor. <laughs> I always like, you know, it's interesting, friends, the postmoderns, they can't live this out. The same people that are claiming we can't know our scriptures and they reject logic, they still stop at red lights. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they always will. In other words, they don't live it out. And Francis Schaeffer, uh, Bob pointed this out, I read Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer dealt with this 40 years ago, where what people are doing is they're throwing their faith in an upper story where it has no connection to reality. In other words, in their daily lives, they use logic, but when it comes to their faith and knowing Scripture, all of a sudden it can't be known. Right. And, and they're not living it out consistently. Next time a postmodern owes you five bucks and they give you a ten, just keep the ten and say, <laughs> what's the difference? Right? Right? Why? Why would they argue with There's that? There's no difference between a postmodern. <laughs> right. Well, right. exactly. And so, in a sense, this whole postmodern, which, by the way, you know who invented the term postmodern? Martin Heidegger. Oh. You know who Martin Heidegger was? He was a German philosopher between World War I and World War II. He invented the term postmodern, and Heidegger became a staunch fascist. That's right. Okay? And do you know what the most popular movie was in fascist Germany? The title of it? The title was given to it by Hitler. The title was The Triumph of the Will. Oh. The Triumph of the Will. And what Heidegger taught was that if you are, you will morality. In other words, there's no transcendent God above us, beyond us, who has spoken and revealed moral truth. Hmm. Moral truth is a community thing that's willed. Hmm. And you will morality into existence. And once you will your own morality, whatever it may be, then to be authentic, all you have to do is just stick with that. Hmm. And so that explains why in fascist Germany, under Nazism, people that were educated, yeah. university people, artistic people, elite people, were able to take people into the death camps where they would die and then go home and make yeah. supper and sit with their families and feel really good about everything. Because huh. they were living out what the community willed. Huh. The battle today in America... Is, is, is this, has God spoken? And if he has spoken, is that what is morally good? Uh-huh. Or does the community get to decide through their own will what's good and what's evil? Uh-huh. And whatever we decide, that's it. It doesn't matter because there's no transcendent moral law that says killing all these millions of people is bad. Right, right, yeah. So I'll talk about this in my sermon, but yeah. we just had a denomination voting on what is moral and what's not moral. No, dear ones, there's no vote to be taken. Right. <laughs> Next That's thing you know, they'll put the Ten Commandments up for a vote. <laughs> yeah, very sad. Well, we'll see everyone uh, upstairs.